G'day there, it's Tyson Popplestone here. You're listening to the Relax Running Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to review. If you don't like it, don't don't review it. I don't want I don't want one star reviews. Only go and review it if you're gonna give me five stars. Otherwise, forget I said anything. Anyway, hope you enjoy the show. Alright, the truth is, before I hit record to record the introduction to this podcast, I get nervous now because my wife says I start the show the same way every week, which is, g'day guys, Tyson here from the Relax Running Podcast, and I've just said it again, but that wasn't the official intro. The official intro is coming in just a moment. I'm telling you this because if you've noticed I've been starting it the same way for the last couple of weeks and you haven't liked it, you, sh- you should have told me. Why Why did you keep it to yourself? You should have let me know. huh? I'm open to suggestions. So... I would like to officially apologize. I'm not, it doesn't matter. This is a tangent. I'm going to make up for it with a good podcast today that you guys are in for a treat. If you're an ultra marathon man or woman, you are, you're going to like this one. In fact, I'm sure you've heard of him before. Zach Bitter is a big deal on the ultra marathon scene. I, I was really excited for this chat. I reached out to him just a couple of weeks ago and said, mate, I haven't had enough ultra runners on my podcast. Are you interested? And, uh, like a legend, he just got back and said, yeah, would love to. Let's do it. Very easy guy to talk to. Uh, man, I was jealous of his little studio setup as well, which if you want to see the visuals, I've uploaded this podcast onto YouTube as well. So just go to the Relaxed Running YouTube channel, uh, which is, it's quite new, but we're getting some videos up there. I try and do some tips and tricks and uh, little helpful insights for anyone who's getting involved in the distance running scene. So you might enjoy some of those as well, especially if you're new. Uh, so jump over there to the Relaxed Running YouTube channel to check it out. A little bit about this guy. He is the world record holder for the 100-mile run. He's also the world record holder for the 100 miles on a treadmill, which is, <laughs> I said to him, I don't know how anyone runs 100 miles on a treadmill. I sometimes do a 30-minute run on a treadmill, and by about 24 minutes, I'm so bored, I just, I've got to get off it. But coronavirus hasn't given us many options at the moment, so he's made the most of a difficult time. Uh, this was a this was a really fun chat. Uh, really excited to bring it to you. And uh, hey, make sure you shoot him some love. He's Zach Bitter on all his socials, zachbitter.com. If you want to check out his web- website or get a little bit more guidance on the ultra marathon training scene, he's a, he's a, a coach to ultra marathon athletes. So reach out to him there. Guys, I'm going to get out of the way. Let me introduce to you the great man coming at you from, I'm pretty sure it's Phoenix, Arizona, Zach Bitter. You've got a good little setup going on there with the the green screen behind you. Is that purely for the podcast, or do you do a little bit of video recording yourself? Yeah, a little bit of both. I I got it originally for the podcast, but since then I've been doing a little more just uh, personal videos and some video type stuff for like the marketing side and some of my sponsors. So it's been kind of cool to have a decent setup for that. Yeah, nice man. That's good. I uh, as soon as your picture came up, I thought, oh, I was happy with my little visuals here this morning. I've got my <laughs> lamp set up on a stage behind the camera shining as uh, over the top of my computer to my head so the lighting's average but I, as soon as your camera came on I thought man I'm gonna have to lift my game here because the, uh, the green <laughs> screen looks good and what have you got a you got a proper camera set up or is that coming through your computer yeah I'm using like a Logitech external USB camera and I think it's like 1080p or something like that so it does a pretty decent job 
Yeah, beautiful, man. So with your with your videos that you said you're recording, you're putting those up on your own YouTube channel to reach out to your audience a little more? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been putting stuff up on on my YouTube channel and uh, and then uh, for HPO podcast, uh, putting stuff up on that side as well. So it's uh, it's been kind of fun to, to play around with that side of stuff. I, I got into podcasting as a guest pretty early. I think I went on my first podcast maybe – probably almost 10 years ago at this, maybe not quite 10 years ago, nine years ago or so. And uh, um, just really kind of love that format. So kind of getting into the other side of it where you're doing the recording and the hosting and stuff like that's been kind of exciting, exciting to learn that side and dive into that, that end of it. 100%. It's a nice little way to release your creativity as well, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. uh, trying to, I don't know, you look like you've got a better setup than me. We're in a one bedroom apartment here in Melbourne, which is which is quite cozy. But uh, just the idea of, of you said you, you had your Logitech camera set up and it's a good feeling trying to, to get it all set up so you can produce as good a quality stuff as you can. Just assume you're at your own house. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, like our, my wife and I, we have a house here in Phoenix and then we have like this little it's kind of like a standalone shed, but it's decent enough quality and it's got good lighting and good kind of uh, acoustics. So I've got it set up out there and, and that way I don't bother her when I'm recording podcasts. She's like, I want to get on the treadmill and you're recording a podcast in the room with the treadmill. <laughs> so I moved, I moved it all out here and it's, it's actually worked really, really well because early on, you know, the learning curve to get the audio and the video right is, uh, is pretty steep. So, um, you know, i I've wrestled through some of that in the, in the early stages of my podcast and then kind of you figure out like what works well and what doesn't from an audio and a video side of things. So it's uh, like you said, it's kind of a cool skill that is to, to develop. Yeah, man. I just saw this morning that you were, um, I've forgotten his name, Sean. What's his last name? The bloke you co-host the podcast with? Baker. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Baker. Yeah. He, he did. He used to have his own podcast. I've, I've, I don't know if I'm uh, making this up, but I've I've got a memory of some bloke called Sean who had a like a gym or a nutrition podcast with some ripped body on the front. I could just be confusing him for something else, or just uh, chucking a, a massive compliment on his name. Was that the is that the bloke who used to have a pretty popular podcast with nutrition, or is this the first one you guys have done? Yeah, this is uh, this is the first one we've done. I don't think Sean has had another another. He's he's got a, his own like website and stuff that he does a lot of other stuff on. Uh, kind of around his training and his nutrition and stuff like that too. So um, that that came after uh, Human Performance Outliers podcast though. So I'm thinking you might be thinking of a different Sean, but um, yeah, I mean Sean's an interesting guy though. He's uh, uh, one of the reasons we partnered up in the first place was just because he's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum I am from a training standpoint. He's uh, we jokingly would say in the beginning he's like almost literally twice as big as I am, <laughs> and he's been like. <laughs> A professional rugby player he competed in the highland games he's done you know a lot of like power lifting type stuff strength explosive sports and then i'm on the, the exact opposite end just seeing how far i can run in a day and stuff like that so like, <laughs> it ends up being kind of a cool uh cool uh, contrast i think when we bring on guests yeah beautiful we're not known for our our uh, massive physiques and big bodies are we so you get a rugby player <laughs> in the room or over in australia we've got the uh the Australian rules football is you stand next to one of those yeah. guys for more than 10 minutes. You go, you know what? I need to get a gym membership or stop running so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is this a shed that you, uh, that you did your hundred mile world record in? I was tuning in and out watching your, uh, your treadmill, uh, run, which was, which was streamed over, over YouTube and stuff. And I was thinking, man, like they've got a pretty good setup going on here. Where was that one filmed from? 
Yeah, no, I was pretty fortunate for that. I had a lot of help behind the scenes. Uh, it was actually at our house, though. We had uh, I partnered up with Nordatrack, and they sent over a couple of their newer models of treadmills. So I had two machines to kind of bounce back and forth on over the course of the day. And then uh, we had all the audio video stuff kind of set up in that room, but kind of moved out into the other room. So there wasn't like a huge congestion of stuff in there. And then it was basically, uh, you know, a lot of folks working kind of digitally behind the scenes to get all the assets ready for that, all the setup and make sure everything was going to run smoothly through Zoom into YouTube and, uh, you know, crossing over from the guests to the treadmill screen and all that stuff. So it was a it was a blast to kind of put that together and, and kind of be like equal parts uh, competitor and equal parts uh, uh, event coordinator, I guess, even though I was <laughs> definitely not the one pull, pull the only one pulling strings on that side of things. But uh, yeah, that's how we did it. We had it set up the house. You know, the big the biggest hurdle we actually had was I think a lot of times when people go after these treadmill records, um, obviously this un- was a unique situation where like events got canceled and that's kind of how I found myself on the treadmill in the first place. Um, but, uh, you know, usually you, you're probably going to do these in like a huge, like convention hall or something for like, a for either like a race expo or some sort of like trade show type thing, or even like a big warehouse that, uh, you know, the, whatever treadmill company you're working with ho- houses or something like that. And I think that's probably like the ideal setup, but with, uh, with everything going on with the COVID-19 stuff, it was a stay at home effort. So <laughs> we had it all kind of set up that house. And uh, we ended up actually having to run an extension cord across the house for the for the treadmills because we ended up running so much power through the room between the two treadmills, <laughs> their screens, and then the audio video equipment and things like that. That uh, we were actually having the screens time out on the treadmills because it was just <laughs> shorting. And then once we figured out what it was, what was going. At first, I was worried. I was like, "Oh, hopefully this isn't something that a hiccup with the treadmill." Because you know, for for Nordatrack, it's like. Obviously, if this goes off well, that's a good PR for them. But if it goes belly up and I can't finish because the machine breaks, that's just terrible PR for them. So, so they kind of have to risk it a little bit with that. But um, thankfully, it had nothing to do with their machine. It was just I needed to run an extension cord to the other side of the house and kind of spread out the power, I guess. And uh, after that, it works. It was pretty smooth sailing from a logistical standpoint, anyway. Yeah, man. My wife and I went to Bali for our honeymoon about ten years ago now, and actually, we were there last December and because of the humidity um, and and probably in fairness the road traffic it's just I don't know if you've ever been there but it's just a it's a crazy place to run around so mm-hmm. after a few days I resorted to just going to the local gym and jumping on the treadmill for for all of my runs and I got to about 45 minutes and I was like mate I don't know how I can handle this so when I saw that you were going for the 100 mile world record I was thinking <laughs> gee it takes a it takes a special bloke and <clears throat> obviously heard a little bit of your stuff and I'm friends with some ultra marathon runners myself. So I know you guys are a unique breed when it comes to the headspace that you can get yourself in, but how did you find that experience? Cause that's a long time to spend, um, running at the pace you are, but staying in one spot. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely the most unique thing about it. You know, I've probably had like a slightly decent advantage relative to a lot of ultra runners just because I've done enough like 400 meter track type setups where kind of the monotony, side of things is something I've been able to do do well at historically and I definitely had some reference points there but uh, the biggest thing was just like when you're out even if you're running on a short loop course like a 400 meter track you're still kind of in control you're making all these like kind of micro adjustments that you don't really notice but you are doing them so like your your pace even if it's super even is still got these tiny little like micro fluctuations whereas when you're on a treadmill like you can adjust it obviously but like you're responding to the belt so you're kind of being told what to do more or less. 
And that just kind of creates a little bit of a different like kind of psychological experience, I think, where like you kind of like you want to kind of gain back that control that you're losing. And like the the way your body kind of at least my body interpreted was get off the machine. <laughs> so <laughs> I probably had a few more stops than I would have liked in an ideal situation and certainly more than I did when I ran the 100 mile world record outright in August. So uh, that was one thing I really noticed uh, was that the the psychology of being on a treadmill was a quite a bit different than any other event I've done before. Yeah, it's funny, man. Like the ultra marathon, it's not like an NBA or a, a like a huge, big, popular sport in terms of like crowds and stuff you get there. But it's been amazing just to watch the the interest that's come through what you're doing. And I was I was having to read through some YouTube video comments before, and my favorite one I saw someone had written: "Imagine dropping this bloke. Uh, imagine driving a hundred miles away from this bloke and him rocking up to where you are before dark." And I thought, <laughs> yeah, that, that's like the that's the perfect appreciation from a non runner's perspective. That terrified me a little bit. I thought, mate, you can't escape so far uh, <laughs> it's it's really interesting like how have you uh, i know I've, I've heard a little bit of your stories yet like you, you went through like a division three school was it and you were on the track and cross-country team and um then what you, you gradually just developed a bit of an interest for the for the ultra endurance stuff because I've, I've, i used to be a middle distance runner and so sort of, I, I went up to about 10k and uh, 10k was about where i put the brakes on i thought you know what that's uh, that's about enough mm-hmm. for me but i've i've dabbled in a few longer events and i just i know the uh it's a completely different headspace it's a completely different physical sensation that you get running through there so how did you how did you start navigating your way towards the ultras yeah it's a good question I, you know I, I got into running in general a lot like i think most people do through like middle school and high school cross country and track and field and that sort of stuff and that's kind of where i recognized that uh, you know, distance running relative to what like that age group would do was something that I was probably going to excel at a little more than say some of the more like team sports, like basketball, baseball, football, and that sort of stuff. So I started kind of skewing my like extracurricular activity interests towards track and cross country. And, but I was pretty fortunate in my opinion, looking back at it, that like, I didn't get so engulfed in it at a really young age that I, found myself kind of petering out from a, an excitement standpoint. Um, you know, I would think by my senior year in high school, I was maybe running about 30 miles or so, or which, uh, roughly 50 kilometers a day, or I'm sorry, a week. Yeah. It's funny you have to clarify that now because people go, okay, I'm just going to do what Zach Bitter did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, as a freshman in high school, I was running 50K a day and just, that's how you, <laughs> no, but so that kind of got me interested enough in the sport and then my senior year of high school my coach uh really just kind of was also a fan of the sport participated in the sport himself so having kind of an adult figure and a coach at that time in my life that was was able to kind of express his interest and and kind of walk the walk so to speak was really i think powerful for me to kind of recognize that running is a sport you can do your whole life this isn't something that ends once the season ends or your team goes away and that sort of thing like that so uh, that got me interested in kind of continuing on in college. And I went to the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, where I competed uh, for a Division three school in track and cross country for, I actually did three years of cross country and two years of indoor and outdoor track. So I didn't do like full eligibility or anything like that. But um, it was a great enough experience that I really kind of learned a lot more about the hows and whys of workouts and peaking for specific races and distance and things like that. And, you know, along that kind of experience, I, I kind of recognized that I really enjoyed the long run as the, my favorite workout of the week. So when I graduated and started uh, 
getting into the real world, so to speak. I didn't want to stop running, but I didn't necessarily have like the structure of a team and, and that atmosphere around me. So I, uh, I just started running like higher volume without a lot of focus on intensity or anything like that for, for the better part of a couple of years after, after college. And, and that's, I think what kind of drew me into the ultra marathon stuff. I remember, I think it was in, it was in probably this late spring, early summer of 2010. I was just kind of looking online for like, is there any races kind of near, near home? I think I was looking for a marathon actually that I could just like put on the schedule as kind of a target. And as I was combing through that, I recognized there was a 50 miler that was not too far from my house. And I didn't even realize there were ultra marathons in Wisconsin at the time. That's how, how uninformed I was about like the, the details of the sport. <laughs> so, uh, when I, when I saw that, I was like, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try that. And at the time I was 24. So my thought at the time was, I don't really think I'll get into this stuff until I'm like 30, but I'll do this one just to kind of see what it's like. And then I can always kind of go back to doing some shorter distance stuff. Uh, if I don't like it or if I want to wait longer and, and I did it. And after, after that 50 miler I did in 2010, I was convinced I was going to be doing them more frequently than, than by age 30. So, uh, I did wait a full year to do another one though. And, but by 2011, by the end of the year, I was, I was all in and I was training for basically just ultra marathons. Gee. So what was it about that 50 miler? Was it the fact like you had a good run, you enjoyed the experience or was it the headspace you got into? Like it, it's a, it's a fairly big change from the races that you were doing. So was there a particular part of that run that you did that was the, the motivational factor for you to keep pursuing it? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, Part of it was something that I've kind of carried forward, I think, in a lot of my training and racing even today is just like I really enjoyed the process of preparing for it. So like one thing I've tried to tell myself is like if you want this sport to be sustainable for you or something you're going to enjoy, you know, well into your however long you want to do it, it's got to you got to enjoy the process. So like if you start hating the training and the things you have to do to get ready for the race, then why are you doing it? Because, you know, the race is such a small piece to that whole training puzzle. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. So I knew I kind of wanted to like, you know, explore the, the different ways to prepare and kind of try to fine tune and hopefully like get as close to perfection as I can for my own personal self within the sport. Uh, and you know, that really just interested me. So I think that's what kept or got me coming back, uh, was that, and then also just, you know, relatively from a competitive standpoint too. Uh, you know, I was never like a, a rock star for the traditional distances, you know, in high school, I would make the state cross country and track meet by my senior year. And, and uh, the school I went to was a very competitive division three school, but I was by no means the top runner or even in the, in, you know, the, the top handful of guys on those teams. So, um, I wasn't necessarily accustomed to finishing on the top of a podium, um, or even on the top of the or on the podium, I guess I should say, <laughs> in a, in a, in anything other than maybe some local races and like smaller local marathons and 5Ks, 10Ks and things like that. So I think uh, the success also is a good driver where I kind of thought to myself, like, I think I might just have a little bit of a knack for some of this longer stuff. And if I'm enjoying doing it and I'm having some success with it, it seems like that's probably the recipe to, to focus my energies on that versus something else. Yeah, man, that makes sense. I was looking back at some old videos of you and you might not have been a rock star in terms of finishing on the podium, but in terms of uh, being a rock star with the hairstyle that you were rocking, <laughs> you're uh, you're making some point. I thought it was Jesus going for an ultra marathon run. You're a, you're a good looking man with that with those locks going. Well, I reckon that's taken a few seconds off your time just getting rid of the getting rid of all that hair, hey? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that was funny. I started ultra running with short hair and then after I was in the sport for a few years, I grew it out. And I think it was at the end of 
2016 maybe or 2017 I think I cut it and went short and then once I cut it and felt reminded myself what it was like to have really short hair and then took that first shower without long hair and I was like okay yeah I'm sticking with the short hair I don't know why I ever did that (laughs) dude I've been trying to grow my hair just for about a month and as you can see it's not doing too much but it was shorter than it and already I'm getting frustrated I get out of the shower and it takes me 30 seconds to dry it I think this is a waste of my day how much how much more of this can I get can I handle and you had me well and truly covered I reckon it would have been a 25 minute process to dry that yeah yeah it was it was it was it was a lot more time consuming and use a lot more shampoo and soap and stuff like that so <laughs> so uh, before we hit record I, I spoke to you briefly about what's going on in uh in Arizona at the moment with you you said you have uh actually I don't know if I'm making this up did you say that you guys have returned to sort of harsher lockdown rules or am I just remembering what I told you about Melbourne <laughs> oh yeah so I mean it's kind of, it's kind of like a little goofy in the U.S. because it's been more or less been up to the states and even the the local municipalities like the cities to really determine like what kind of measures are taken from an enforcement standpoint so we, you've seen all sorts of different things from like some cities that were uh, looking to be like pretty proactive with it, like mandatory masks and things like that, mandatory business closings and things to try to limit the spread and all that stuff. And then there are other cities and states that like hardly did anything in the first the first round of stuff. So I think at this point now that like we're starting to learn a little bit more about the virus and we're seeing some of the second wave kind of take place, even though it's the heat of summer, um, which at one point was supposed to kind of dampen it. But, uh, you know, I think people are starting to realize now, like, this is something we're going to have to take seriously, at least at the basic level of like, you know, wearing a mask, trying to stay six feet apart and um, trying to limit the amount of times you go to like indoor public places like grocery stores and things like that, if you can help it. And uh, yeah, so we're kind of now in a situation where I think everyone is starting to get on the same page. Um, But, you know, that's kind of the, the learning process for something like that is uh, a little bit more painstaking when you get it wrong the first time. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard thing to practice for. There's not too many pandemics that we've had to live through ever, right. Right, in the last <laughs> in the last one. This is what we did. So we'll just do that again. It's a, I tell you, I'd hate to be making the big decisions right now because I, I can see how harshly like our leaders over here are, are being criticized from my lips sometimes as well. And then I take a step back and go, oh, bloody hell, like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I would do differently. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting too in the US because like like our kind of like, some of our like constitutional foundation is this like this uh this the ideology of like kind of freedom and like you know like uh do what you do what you want to do and you have that like that ability to make those decisions on yourself and it's like that's a great i think that that works really well in a lot of cases but it also makes it very difficult in a time like this where you need kind of like uniform decision making and then you put on top of it uncertainty i mean that's the big thing right is like we know so little about it even now but we knew way less even back the first around the first wave that you know if you just tell people oh yeah there's this big storm coming and it's they look out the window like i don't see a storm anywhere and you know <laughs> i'm gonna just keep doing what i was normally doing so like i think sometimes the the downside of more freedom and less kind of top-down enforcement with things like this is a lot of times you have to feel the pain before you make the change versus trying to preempt it and 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 kind of get out ahead of it so so we're 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 not looking good on the world stage in terms of how we've managed here in the US <laughs> but uh hopefully we can we can turn that around and ultimately get a get a vaccine at some point in the in the not too distant future so we can uh you know like the whole world can kind of try to return to some semblance of normalcy 
Yeah, it's funny, man. Like, uh, I've been laughing because we've done fairly well in comparison to a lot of places over here. And the the Prime Minister and a few of the Premiers are getting a bit of a strut in their step, forgetting about the fact that we're thousands of miles away from anyone else just on this massive island that heaps of people yeah. have forgotten about that <laughs> so we've got the luxury of distance. But you're right. It's funny because there's, there's – uh, like, I know we're nothing like you guys in terms of being passionate about our, our freedom and stuff, but I've seen a couple of people start firing up lately, and a couple of my friends go, you know what, I think I'm going to get a gun. I go, what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, um, So I feel like there's a, a little bit of sympathy or a little bit of striving towards uh, being a little bit more like the States amongst some people here. That could just be the crowd that I hang out with. So I'm not sure what side of the fence you're on there, but that probably yeah, says more about my friends than and the rest of the Australian population. But it's been a it's been an interesting time to watch, and it's, it's interesting as well because there's um you're right like there's so many different opinions, there's so many different perspectives, and in a way like the running scene we've we've almost been in a bit of a luxury apart from losing a couple of races here and there. It hasn't affected the way that we we train a lot. Like I know in Australian footy, I, I keep referring to Australian footy. Like I assume you've you've seen YouTube videos of yeah. Uh-huh. talking about have you? Because I've mentioned it a couple of times in the states, and people go, mate, I don't know what is that rugby? Is that what's that? Oh, I was just saying, I assume you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Otherwise, I'm just having a conversation with you about a sport you've probably never seen. Oh, or heard. <laughs> I was, when you said footy, I was thinking soccer. Is that my right about that? Oh, dude, I'm going to send you a YouTube video after just to just to show you what I'm talking about. It's not soccer. It's like, I guess the best way you can explain it is is it's like soccer meets rugby in a way. Oh, okay. Um, oh, the, you know what? Yeah, I think I did. Is it where is it? It's kind of like rugby up until you get near the goal and you try to kick it. Is it? It's not over a post though, is it? Am I right it's about that? It's not over a post. Yeah, you, you're pretty, you're pretty spot on, really. So you'll see if you've seen footage of it, it's it's four big posts. So you've got two big posts in the middle, two smaller ones on the outside, and your your goal is essentially to kick it through the middle big posts, and that's our okay. big sport here in Australia. So um, it's and it's pretty much middle of the season right now, and um especially where I live, it's the, it's the hot sport, but the, the footballers have, have copped it pretty sweet. Like there's been big changes in the places that they play in the ways that they train. They can only have groups of 11. I think, mate, like if there's one time to be a distance runner, it's, it's not a bad time right now, is it? Like yeah. you can get out on the trail still, you can escape. It's probably just the, uh, the fact you have to race on treadmills more than against competition. That's the, the <laughs> biggest obstacle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, being a runner is probably the best sport you can do right now in terms of still being able to kind of participate in some capacity. It's um, especially if you get outdoors. I think that's where like we've recognized that it's a little easier to keep your social distance and 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 not negatively impact things. And so yeah, it's been that side of things. The training side of things hasn't changed too much for me, um, at least not now. It's just uh, the the end goal, I guess, is what's kind of the variable here. Where like I don't. I'm starting to build back up for a race, but I don't know what that race is going to be yet, which is kind of new. Usually before I start a build up, I've at least picked like a race or a couple of races that I'm going to choose from. So I can kind of design the training a little bit around it. But um, without knowing, I'm just kind of starting from the beginning of where I normally would and do some of the kind of the foundational stuff I would normally do earlier in a training plan for for like a hundred mile ish type distance race. And then uh, hopefully jump in something like that by the end of the year if things get get to the point where we can do that um, but yeah so it's a it's kind of an interesting side with that but at least we're able to get out and move around yeah so did you have a particular race that you were targeting before all this kicked in uh yeah I was actually gonna do a hundred miler over in London in April was the one I had on the calendar and I was actually just getting like I was probably midway through like what I would call like my peaking phase for that uh, when it all started to, everything started to kind of cascade and cancellations so once that happened, since it was a flat hundred miler, 
uh, that kind of is what made me think, well, what translates well to a flat hundred miler that I can still use some of this fitness on. And, uh, the treadmill was basically the only option. So, um, <laughs> and it, it was interesting though, cause I mean, I was very familiar with treadmill records. I followed like Michael Wardian go after the 50 K a couple of times, uh, Jacob Puzzi, I was friends with, and he has the 50 mile world best. And then, um, Dave Proctor, I was familiar with, and he was the one who had had the hundred mile and 12 hour world record. So I was aware of these and I just thought it would be an interesting thing to do at some point, but I just never really found a good place to put it when then there was normalcy and events everywhere. So once all those got canceled and that was basically the only option, I thought, well, now's the opportunity to, to pursue this if I'm going to do it. So that's kind of how that, that, that played out. Yeah, it's been funny. I don't know if it's the same over there, but uh, a lot of the local athletes here have just started putting on time trials. Like before the restrictions that have just come in a couple of days ago, there, there was three or four people just pacing everyone around the track. And um, there's been some big times. Like, I don't know if you saw uh, the – do you follow the middle distance scene much still or are you more interested in the ultras? Well, obviously yeah. you're more interested in the ultras, but in terms of just from a spectator's point of view. Yeah, I kind of keep my finger on the pulse a little bit, but I don't follow it as closely as I'd like to. It's something I want to try to get back into and pay a little closer attention to that stuff. But I've seen a few of these uh, kind of virtual runs or kind of time trial-esque type setups for some of the like marathon and below crowd. And it's been kind of cool to see see that they're staying fit despite not having a, a Diamond League season or an Olympic Games to prepare for. Yeah, it's just been funny watching people adapt and adjust to the situation that we're in. Some of the times that have been dropped, like I saw one of the Inga Britson brothers the other day drop like a 13, 19, 5K. And there's a bloke over here called Matt Ramsden who lives in Western Australia and just posted a video of himself and a couple of his mates running like a, a he ran a 13, 27, 5K, just <laughs> which was just incredible. So uh, I think people have got up and about about the fact that they can still go out and, and run some big times. But Man, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit because you were mentioning before about um, you being in the peak phase of your training. And like to be to be completely honest, like my background in the distance running scene, as I said, is it sort of limits at about the half marathon to the marathon. Like I'm pretty confident in riding training and in, in, in sort of structuring my own program and uh, program of others up until about the marathon. But once you get above the marathon, it's uh, it's foreign territory to me. So you mentioned the peak phase that you were starting to get into. Like, is there a big fluctuation in the way that your your training sort of looks from from month to month or, or sort of from quarter to quarter, you might want to say? Yeah, yeah, to a degree, there's definitely like different phases. So there's a lot of the same types of workouts that you'd see in, in just a typical endurance training program. It's just usually more of an order of operations and kind of how you blend or in my case, don't blend things. So the way I do it is I kind of structure things that are least specific to the race intensity and environment kind of earlier in the plan. Um, and then I kind of work towards what's going to be specific to race day intensity. So since hundred miles, just by default of its length, it has to be low intensity relative to like any of these traditional distances that usually just means like things that I would normally be using to kind of sharpen the spear for say like a 5k or a 10k, I'm going to be doing a little earlier in the plan and then phasing out of those things as I get into like the phase of training where I may be like eight weeks out from the event itself or six weeks from my taper. And the way that usually looks is it's a lot of kind of like short interval, kind of like VO2 max type workouts early on. I, I really like a three minute intervals like uh, duration for those. Um, I'll do other dis or other shorter and, and slightly longer than that from time to time too. But that two to four minute window is the one I'm really looking at to kind of a, to address that VO2 max system. 
of training. And then I'll, I'll build volume within that for a few weeks before moving into a phase of training where I'm focusing on building volume at like my lactic th- acid threshold. Um, I'm usually using kind of heart rate perceived effort in combination to kind of gauge that stuff. And, you know, I'll do a few weeks of that and build, build volume at that as that as kind of like my focus in training. And then I'll move into what I like to call like the very specific phase or the peaking phase where I'm building volume typically around, if it's a hundred miles around aerobic threshold is where I'm kind of targeting. Cause that just happens to be about the intensity that I can tolerate for a hundred miles. So then I'm just build kind of some of those other ones. I'm building volume at that. And the biggest difference is when you're working at a intensity of aerobic threshold or slightly under, you can do a ton. So, <laughs> so you, you take out a lot of the speed work and the stuff that can, that are just like really impactful and you can, you can run for quite a while. So like in some of my peaking phases, I'll hit over a hundred miles, like right at kind of aerobic threshold in the context of about 150 mile week. Um, so that's kind of where I was at when I, my race got canceled, I'd just gotten done with two weeks where I did, I think it was just a little over 140 miles on each of them with each of them being just a shade over a hundred miles at, uh, you know, right, right close to aerobic threshold, a little bit under. Um, and you know, that's just like my, my goal is to, since, since the stuff I'm training for is so far to the other side of the spectrum relative to most endurance sports, it kind of lends itself, I think, to be, to not like blend workouts as much or blend systems as much. So like if I were going to race a 5k, 10k or even a marathon, like there's a good chance it's, it will, it's actually probably inevitable that I'm going to use like multiple systems throughout the course of that race. Um, so like it probably behooves me to be doing like some short intervals and some, what we'd call a tempo runs or lactic threshold type runs, uh, in the same week maybe, and kind of do that more traditional kind of hard, easy, hard, type of structure that you commonly see in, in some of the shorter distance stuff. Uh, but with hundred miles being so far to the other side of the spectrum, I think it just, you're really using one tool on race day. And that's like, you know, making sure you don't do too much too early and put yourself in a position where you've, uh, paced yourself properly, defended muscle glycogen properly. So you can have a strong finish. And that just means doing a lot of volume at that, at that intensity in those final kind of weeks leading into it. Yeah. So did you say before that you were averaging uh, probably about 150 miles, but the 100 miles of that was done at a specific pace, at a heart rate pace? Yeah. So usually I'm building a lot of volume like at or just below like my aerobic threshold in that phase, just because when I get into, uh, when I do a hundred miler, usually my heart rate is going to average around 150 beats per minute. And it's going to be a little skewed where the early stages are going to be kind of in the high 130s, low 140s. But by the end, you know, it could be bleeding up into the 160s. Um, a lot of variables at play when you're 10, 11, 12 hours into a, into a race. So <laughs> that the heart rate kind of like adjusts as, as it needs to when like resources are a little more finite, blood volumes lower and fatigue is starting to set in. So I like to kind of train at around that intensity and that buildup in those final buildup and um, usually when I'm really fine tuning my aerobic threshold, I can get that down under a six minute mile pace if I'm getting right up to aerobic threshold. So when I'm doing my real specific stuff, like my back to back long runs on the weekends, then I'm usually kind of holding a little bit far back from that so that I'm closer to around a six and a half minute mile. Cause that's getting a little closer to my hundred mile pace. Um, at least on a flat track anyway. But, uh, yeah, so it's like, it's just becomes like a real specificity thing. And, and I'm usually targeting like about a hundred miles is where my peak volume will get at that intensity. And then the other miles tend to just to be like a little bit like easier, kind of like two a day recovery run type 
type setups. Just I'm a pretty big responder to volume. So for me, like if I have the time and the energy to put in the extra miles, even at a slower pace, I can see the needle move a little bit on my fitness there. So um, I haven't had to got I haven't gotten hit with too many injuries from doing that sort of training, and it seems to have been beneficial when you're running races as long as I am. If you can get away with it, it seems to be something that you can you should probably focus on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if it's just by demand or, or just out of interest, but you sound like you've got quite a scientific approach to uh, the training that you're doing. Like, is it, uh, I'm always interested to hear elite, elite athletes speak about their approach and a number of our top athletes over here speak about how they're, um, you know, they're quite happy just to go out and run by feel. And, and I guess you can get away with that up till about 10K, but when there are so many systems being used and, you know, so many energy stores that you're going to have to tap into over the course of an ultra is, is that something that you've just learnt to really pay attention to when you speak about your bloods and your fitness levels and your, um, your the energy systems that you're tapping into? Like, are, are there particular tools that you use to monitor this stuff or is, is does this just sort of um, pique your interest so you're just naturally sort of inclined to, to check some of the numbers and stuff that you're measuring? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say like perceived effort is my gold standard. That's the thing I'm kind of dialing in when I'm out there actually executing a workout more than than I am like staring at a heart rate monitor. Um, I love wearing heart rate monitors. Look at the data afterwards. So I think you can really tease out where your improvements are at and like kind of where you're starting to fade out at certain things. Like even if I like really develop my aerobic threshold um, to be at a really low pace relative to what I can normally do, you know, then the next step is, well, how long can I do that for before it starts to fade out? And then you can kind of start piecing some of that stuff together to to, to put together like the puzzle that you want to try to execute on race day. So um you know, I'm using these things like heart rate. I'm using them as kind of more of a post-workout analysis type of stuff. And I'm using like trend lines within that to kind of determine where I'm at and determine what I'm going to do next and tease out like if I need more recovery or if I'm in a good position to maybe do a harder workout or something like that. Or if it's the peaking phase, a longer workout is usually the the, the goal then. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I think in most cases... For endurance, like perceived effort is still going to kind of be the driver versus things like heart rate and other, I mean, who knows what technology will come out. But uh, um, generally speaking, I think like a lot of folks, they're interested in targeting a specific time at a specific event. So once you find yourself targeting a specific time, as long as it's a reasonable expectation, as long as you're not, as long as I don't wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to run an eight hour, hundred mile I'm probably going to want to train specifically to that pacing strategy that I need to do to execute that time or you get to where I think I can get on that. So um, then it kind of comes down to just like dialing that stuff in. And then the more you do it, the better you get at kind of adjusting and knowing like, okay, this is what the data says. This is how my body feels when I'm doing it and start to piece together uh, if it's something you can actually sustain. And I mean, it doesn't always work out. I've had races where I've faded hard at the end and that that in to some degree is probably a uh, a miscalculation in like where I could wh- like what I could really target on that given day um sometimes it's variables that you didn't necessarily expect that that drive that and it like maybe gets hotter than you expected or um you have a race strategy that doesn't plan out or doesn't doesn't necessarily play out on the day the way you expected it to and it comes back to bite you and things like that but Um, and then, you know, you get in a competitive race too, and it's like, you want to run your own race, but the sport has gotten competitive enough now where to a degree you have to be at least cognizant of what everyone else is doing. And if you're going to let someone go and you're planning on beating them that day, then you got to be able to like 
trust that you're able to reel that in. So if it gets to a point where you're like, I can't reel this in anymore, so I'm going to have to speed up if I want to try to to get X position or beat X person, then um, then you kind of have to make a decision that maybe maybe isn't isn't as clear in your training buildup as to whether you can do it or not. But but you know that's the fun of it too, right? It adds the kind of the gamesmanship component to to the whole process. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Are you are you monitoring heart rate while you're sleeping and things like that? Are you monitoring sleep and because um, I know there's so many elements that you got to nurture when it comes to recovery. Um, but I was I caught up with a sports doctor here in Melbourne the other day who looks after a number of the Australian athletes and uh, he was showing me this ring that he wears. And he goes, mate, you just thought I was quite stylish, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah, I hadn't like noticed. Aura to ring. Be fair. <laughs> the aura ring. I was going to ask if you had seen the aura ring or if you use anything like that. Yeah, I, I don't use the Aura Ring, but I do I do have some stuff like the the I work with a company called Koros Wearables. They make like GPX GPS watches and things, um, and they also have like integrated into their stuff like the optical heart rate that'll tell you like your it'll, if you turn it on to feature it'll give you like your heart rate ranges throughout the course of the day. It'll tell you like when you were in deep sleep and when you were in light sleep when you were awake and all that stuff. So I can I can tease out a lot of stuff from that if I'm wearing it all the time. Um, and, uh, that I'll use, I'll use mostly the thing I probably lean on the most is like where my resting heart rate is at. So if I start noticing that like overnight, my heart rate is say five to 10 beats per minute higher than it normally would be, you know, that's a pretty good indication that my body's fighting to kind of recover a little bit. And it might be a good time to scale back a tad and let things catch up. Or like, you know, sometimes you wake up and you look and your resting heart rate was below average all night long and you're like, okay, I'm ready to let it rip today. Um, so I can, I'll use some of that stuff, but usually I'm paying more attention to kind of just what my body's telling me as much as I am looking at that stuff. I'm using, sometimes I'm using that stuff to kind of core or to, to pair up with how my body feels. So I can tease out like, well, when my heart rate's around here, I can expect my workout to feel like this. When my heart rate's there, I can expect my workout to probably feel feel more like that and and kind of use it in conjunction with just like your own intuition. Yeah. So that's something you're monitoring every morning. You look back at your average heart rate overnight just to to see roughly where your body's at. Um to a degree. I mean when I'm in like a real when I'm in real peak training and I'm getting to that point of the training where I know I'm gonna be really really reaching at kind of the last little bit of things, I'm paying a little more close attention to that. But if I'm in like off season or even like the early phases of training where uh, my volume and intensity is relatively to low to where I'm going to be at normally. I don't always like just get stuck on looking at that stuff too closely because I'm just not working hard enough to really elicit a, a big enough stress response at that point in the season to really like to worry as much about it. So I give myself a bit of a break from some of that stuff when I'm outside of some of the peaking type stuff. Yeah, man, you seem like a, a really relaxed kind of fella. Like, uh, and I, I, it seems to go hand in hand with performance. Like I would say that the the best Aussie run. In fact, there's a number of runners all around the world. I got Usain Bolt flashing into my mind right now. Who, <laughs> whether or not he was stressed under the surface before the start of any any race, he always looked like the most relaxed bloke just on the. Scooping around, field. yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's just mucking around, and it, it's there seems to be a real correlation. Like a, I had a chat with a, a yoga instructor just the other day here in Melbourne. He was speaking about how much energy we can waste before we get to the the start line. He's got a background in distance running and, and found yoga through injury and stuff like that, but. Uh, he was like, mate, the amount of energy that people waste just rehashing or thinking about how a race might go or whether they're going to be able to take down a competitor or whether they're in form or how their training is going can be exhausting. And uh, it sort of doesn't surprise me that uh, even looking back a few years in some of the YouTube videos that I've watched of you, you always seem to have that temperament of just relaxed. 
um is that is that quite natural to you or is that just uh have you got good at just managing the nerves and and the stress that comes with performance and training and and just trying to get the most out of yourself Guys, that is the end of the public part of this podcast. However, members, it is available for you now on the private members-only podcast. We've got about another 23, 25 minutes left of the chat where we go right into detail about his nutrition and about how he prepares for race day, how he prepares for training, and get into a little bit more specifics about some of the training rates that he looks at when he's uh, in the process of trying to organize for a big event. So if you want to jump on board there, you can do so for 10 bucks a month. Or you can jump on board for just 80 bucks a year if you prefer the annual option. We've got a we've got a great community over there now. It'd be great to have you be a part of it. We've got access to 13 other completely private podcasts, which uh, you can only access if you're a member with uh, Australia's 1500 meter record holder Ryan Gregson, marathon star Jess Trengove. We've got Andrew Wheating and Craig Engels, who's a 351 miler. Man, we've got we've got some good quality guests over there. So if you want to jump on board please do so. You can kickstart your three-day free trial now by going to relaxrunning.com slash join. Um, that's not enough for you. We also have training programs from the 5K to the marathon, from beginner to advanced. You'll also get access to the Experts Corner video library where this is something that's building and building each and every month. So we've got some athletes answering uh, our member questions, which are only available to members um, from training to diet to nutrition to recovery. We're also joined by Olympic exercise physiologist John Quinn, who shares his insight on recovery. Got video with podiatrists and physiotherapists walking you through strength sessions and activating those muscular imbalances that might lead to injury. Also in the process of getting some yoga videos and stuff there. So, hey, there's plenty over there. We've got a great community, so I'd love to welcome you on board. So visit relaxrunning.com slash join to jump on board. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.